Well, as we talk about tongues today, I want to offer kind of an opening thought to frame it up because this out of all the gifts perhaps gets the most pushback in debate. And depending on your experience of church, you probably come with some presuppositions, some some thoughts one way or the other on if you were put up here today and said, where do you stand on the gift of tongues? And that oftentimes has far more to do probably with our experience than our theology as in whatever people we are around, church we grew up in, versus we just have come to it with a blank slate, opened our Bibles, studied it for ourselves, and arrived at that conclusion. To which last week I alluded to the idea that um, people will adopt a theology to accommodate their experience, generally speaking. You get raised in some type of background, some worldview, church or not, and as you go and as you grow, you go through the Word of God, and if somebody isn't particularly trying to present a certain theological viewpoint to you, you'll adopt a theology likely that does accommodate what you're already familiar with. That's just kind of our human condition. And when it comes to tongues, that can certainly be the case because it's certainly not something I would say right out of the gates that you're catechized in when you become a new Christian, nor should it be. It's not a thing of first importance. First Corinthians 15, the gospel is of first importance. Getting who Jesus Christ is, Man is a sinner and needs a savior. Those are the things of first importance that rightly so we put the focus on. Matters such as spiritual gifts and some of the other things that Paul addresses in this letter to this church, they come over time. And as we learn more of the word of God and center ourselves in it, then, as I said at the beginning of this whole series, we have to be open to our preconceived notions being challenged when they come up against the truth of God's word. And today, the, the starting point that I want us to look at this issue of tongues with fresh eyes, open minds, and of course, teachable hearts, is this idea that if you just look at verse 11 as it stands alone, or verse 10, I should say, to another various kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues, what do you do with that? Well, again, I asked you to put you on the spot. You might go back to, well, here's what I think because this church did this and this person did that and I experienced this. And I'm like, I didn't ask you what you experienced. What's your theology? Well, how do you get a theology? It has to be built from the ground up with the Bible. And my opening premise argument for us to rightly understand tongues in a way that maybe we haven't... uh, zeroed in before, some of you have, but some of you may not have, is that to understand tongues, you need to understand Pentecost. Wonderfully enough, here we are today, 50 days away from the resurrection, Pentecost Sunday. To understand tongues, you have to understand what happened at Pentecost, when that's where tongues arrived, with the power outbreaking the work of the Holy Spirit. But to understand Pentecost, you need to know your big picture of your Bible and particularly what happened in Genesis chapter 11 at Babel. So that's what we're going to do today in order to understand tongues, and we'll get there because we only have to cover one verse. We're going to go back to Pentecost, but to really frame Pentecost upright, we need to see what God was doing back at Babel, the Tower of Babel, that is, in Genesis chapter 11. So that's what we're going to do, and In all that, my goal is to wrap it up in time to go enjoy lunch as one. All right, let me read 1 Corinthians 12, 7 to 11, and then we'll go back to Genesis 11. 
To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another one the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And if we believe that, he can make us wise in what is maybe not a simple matter today, but we trust he can do it. As you turn to Genesis 11, an opening thought on understanding the bigger picture in order to understand specifically what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 12. There's a phrase that was coined by modernist architect and father of the skyscraper, Lewis Henry Sullivan, and it goes that form follows function. Form follows function. That concept was phrased by him when he wrote, Whether it be the sweeping eagle in his flight or the open apple blossom, the toiling workhorse, the branching oak, the winding stream at its base, the drifting clouds over all the sun, form ever follows function. And this is the law. Where function does not change, form does not change. What does that have to do with the topic of tongues? Form follows function. In talking about tongues accurately, we need to get beyond just the form and the debate about the word itself, as if that's going to be all the insight we need, but we need to understand the point of language, because that is ultimately what tongues is about, languages. In fact, I'll say this at the outset, that in your New Testament, the Greek word translated tongue in 1 Corinthians 12, glossa, is not predominantly about a tongue in someone's mouth. It's 50 times in the New Testament used, 17 of those times is talking about a tongue in somebody's mouth, like James 3, the reference to the tongue. But 33 times it's used in reference to languages. And how much different we might understand it, and truly how much closer we would have a sense today of what Greek-speaking listeners would have thought of the phrase when they read it in Acts or 1 Corinthians if translators were to go with speaking in languages. But they go for uniformity across the text in all 50 times it's tongues rather than languages. So that said, let's look at the bigger picture. Let's talk about the function and see the form that follows. Starting at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, when we encounter languages in verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Here's an origin story of language. And the writer of Genesis, Moses, inspired by the Spirit, wants us to pay particular close attention to that. As a new day is supposed to be dawning in Genesis 11. Each time you get a genealogy in Genesis, it's telling a story and it's a recap and then it launches into something new. 
Here we have life after the flood and descendants from Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they're listed in chapter 10. And it's as if the writer is saying, okay, here's take number three on man's bent to try to screw things up versus God's plan of redemption. Genesis 1 and 2, we already looked at a few weeks ago, and God's perfect plan for creating male and female in his image to be his image bearers, you and I, made by God and for God as God's loved and chosen image bearers were called to be God worshipers. And you see in Genesis chapter 3, that gets hijacked right away. Because Satan comes in as the serpent and tempts Eve to be like God. And see, that's the one caveat with being God's image bearers, loved and chosen to be a God glorifier, a God worshiper, created by him and for him and to his glory. The caveat is, but you're not a God. And that's where things go bad. Because how does Satan tempt Eve? You need to be like God, knowing good and evil. No, it's not what he created you to be. Yes, you're created in his image, with, as we talked about a few weeks ago, all, all that intellectual brilliance that he has given uh, man higher than the other creatures. You know, beavers build dams. Chapter 11, man builds a tower to the heavens. Beavers have never tried building a tower to a heaven as far as I track them, still just picking up sticks higher thinking, higher intelligence created in his image, but also ethically. We think about the reasons and rationales behind why we do things. We have a will, and that's created in his image, and we are his image bearers, but we are not to be God. And man screws that up in Genesis 3 on an individual level, Adam and Eve sinning, and then sadly in Genesis 4, you see wickedness peak rather quickly with Cain killing his brother Abel right out of the gate. And then the sin and insanity increases so much from those first people till you get to the descendants of Adam in chapter 5, a recap that as men multiply on the face of the earth beginning in chapter 6, and you think, hey, maybe man has figured it out. Maybe they learned the hard way. Maybe Adam and Eve have told all these generations after, guys, don't screw it up. Worship and obey God alone because you're his image bearers. But no, Genesis 6, 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's your definition for human depravity. It means from the heart, we can conceive in potentiality, though may not accomplish it in actuality, every possible sin imaginable. It's there in your heart, desperately wicked. Doesn't mean you're gonna do them all, but the potential's there. And so what does God do? He was sorry that he had made man on the earth and grieved in his heart. And I will, he says, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. But, verse eight, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So there's this hope now that maybe a new day could dawn. And so uh, the flood comes, wipes out mankind except for Noah and his family. And then it's if, as if it's take two that God blesses Noah and his sons and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, chapter nine. 
repeats that in chapter, or chapter 9, verse 1, and then verse 7 of chapter 9. Be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. I am for you. I'm making a covenant with you. I will protect you. I'll be your God. You be my people. Let's start this thing over. hundred years later, by chapter 11, we're back where we began. Man may not be doing it in the same wicked way that Genesis 6 portrays it. In fact, you see progress being made, albeit using bricks instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. If you are a construction guy, you can uh, talk to me later about if that's a superior method of building or not. But as man advances, he goes backwards in his thinking, verse 4, when he looks around and says to one another, hey, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And you might say, well, what's so bad about that? What's so bad about that is the intention behind it. Look at verse 4. Let us make for ourselves a name. (sighs) No, that's not what you were created to do. You were created to what? Be a glory image bearer and give praise to God's name. Not for your own name. Not to seek your own significance. Yeah, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's be significant. And then let's watch out for ourselves because otherwise we might be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. We got to stick together in open defiance of what? Chapter nine, the double decree repeated. Go, scatter, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. You don't need each other's protection if you got my mandate. But nah, man's got a better idea. You know what's really crazy about this when you actually, you wonder sometimes why the genealogies are in there? Well, one, it gives us a reminder that these are real people that lived at a real time. They're not fables, fairy tales. These are actual human beings like you and I. But it also allows you to track time and who was around to talk to who. And if you go back into chapters 9 and 10 and break it down, um, by the time this is happening, uh, Noah is still alive. It's only 100 years later. And Noah was around when Methuselah was around. And Methuselah was around when Adam was around. So we're not talking some game of telephone of like, you know, 50 people later, Noah's here in chapter 11 saying, you know, I heard this story that we all started in the garden and our forefathers screwed it up by sinning. No, he heard it from Methuselah who heard it from Adam, oral tradition. And then Noah's also around here in order to be able to say, yeah, guys, and I was there when God flooded the earth, so this is probably a bad idea, us trying to be independent of him, making our name significant. When he saved our lives, we could have went out of existence, and now you're going to try to find your own significance in your name? Now, this is all my hypothesis. I mean, you could use the the numbers and genealogies to see it's true, but what would have been going on here? That's just what's so mind-boggling about this. It's not like their own history would have been unknown, and yet they want to fly in the face of God's protection and God's glory and make a name for themselves and provide for themselves. That's a tragedy. God's image bearers using their intelligence and industry to exalt their name over God's name. And it is the same pursuit we see today, the hollow pursuit to find significance apart from God. You find yourself in this? 
trying to make a name for yourself, trying to find significance in what you can do, versus saying, my significance is found in the one who's made me, in the gifts he gave me. Not in me trying to create for my own glory, but to create things for his, created in his image. And to seek my own safety and satisfaction and security apart from him, so much so that I'll defy his command of what he would tell me to do and where he would tell me to go. If I'm so inwardly turned that I forget the two things that it appears man has forgot in verse 4. It's not about your own significance and it's not about you providing for your own safety. God is your significance and God is your protector because God is your maker and you don't need to seek that out and try to find it apart from him. So God, verse 5, comes down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Um, I like that Moses, in writing Genesis, gets that piece of information. It's, it's anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic language. God didn't need to come down and inspect their work, right? He sees all things, knows all things. It's helping us to see ourselves more rightly, isn't it? The significance of the greatest thing we can accomplish, the skyscraper that we can build with our own hands that we think is so magnificent that God comes down to see the city and the tower. We landed a man on the moon. The Trinity. Hey guys, you know that like smallest thing we created? The closest thing to earth? They finally got there. Go man. You guys are great. Now what's awesome is that created in his image, intelligence and industry are built into us. So it is cool when we do stuff like that. But not when we do it what? For our own glory and to our own praise. As if it really is this big deal when it's God who gave you all the gifts to do it with. So God comes down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all the same language. Here comes the problem. This is why Babel connects to Pentecost, and Pentecost connects to tongues. It's the issue of language. They can all communicate as one. And this is what they began to do. Notice God sees the thing so far in advance. He sees the seed of sin at Babel. You just see the tower and you say, really? Is that big of a deal? But he sees where this thing's going to go. And he loves his creation. And he's going to steer them away from it despite their opposition to him and their ignorance of him. They've already declared, we're doing this thing for our own significance. And God in the Trinity says, let us go down and change that. Why? Because nothing they purpose to do at this point will be impossible for them. God knows in advance the potentiality of what bad they can do to themselves if they're not stopped. Isn't that the grace of God It work for people who are not for him? If you don't believe in the common grace of God in this world, caring for the unbeliever, caring for the infidel, caring for the person that would shake their fist at God and curse him, that he's still in his heart a gracious and loving God that will do what he can do 
to lead that person or this entire planet away from its own self-destruction. That's a gracious God. And he doesn't wipe it out like he did at the flood. He does it in a rather benign way. The creativity of God. Okay, guys, here's what we're going to do to keep them from destroying themselves. Verse 7, let's go down and confuse their language so that they'll not understand one another's speech. I would have never thought of that. I mean, I guess that every time I see God do something in the redemptive plan of the Bible, yeah, I'm not going to think to do that. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. It's, it's not even fair to say he's like a million moves ahead. Checkers, chess. We're not even in that category. It's the plan of redemption in action from the beginning to the end. This is the grand story of the Bible that God is moving forward, even though in the moment it looks like he's just dealing with some uh, rebellious crea- creation, some, some people that want to build their own kingdom. And, and maybe, you know, you've never thought about Babel like this before. When you read verse 6, like, well, when he says, now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them, that's both a compliment and a corrective, if you want to call it that. They are created in the image of God, and they could come up with some amazing ideas that they might not at the beginning see how bad that will be for themselves. So you maybe think about that over lunch today and then come off for your thoughts while I'm in my barbecue dream. But, it, you know, when you think about the idea of one, one rule, one tongue, one government, one authority, power corrupts, absolute, corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. They, is that what God was preventing? How bad it could get? How quickly, if everyone could all be of one in the same language, that one person, it's like those, every Marvel movie plot, yeah, there's one bad guy, but then he finds out there's another bad guy, and if two bad guys get together, they can really take over the world, and if that uh, the other bad guy from another planet helps them out, they can take over the universe, but one bad guy's gonna rule all the bad guys. Maybe that's kind of what God is protecting humanity from. If they can all communicate and work together, it'll lead to their own annihilation of themselves. So he stops it, he scatters them abroad from the face of the whole earth, They stopped building the city, and the name of the city was called Babel for confusion, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. He did it for their good, because he has a grand story of man's redemption for his glory happening. Authorized by God the Father from eternity past, going to be accomplished by the Son at Calvary and in his resurrection, and then applied by the what? coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and indwelling in every born-again believer since that point on. That's the grand plan of salvation and redemption. It's the authorization of the Father, the, the application of redemption by the Son at the cross, and then the application or the accomplishment by the Son, and then the application by God the Spirit. All three in the Trinity working together for man to become a God glorifier again. That's the big picture here. And languages is playing a part in that. Because at this point, God had it for man to have one language and working together and be united. But when the plan of redemption could come to a halt, if these people bring themselves to their own destruction, God is going to come in and separate them out for their own good and for his what? Glory. Because Romans 28 tells us that. He works all things for our good and his glory. 
He's even working it in the rebellion of man here in Genesis chapter 11. So now let's fast forward what the curse of Babel was in scattering the languages. Now let's see the curse reversed in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 because this is where language comes into play again. Man's words were meant to be used for the exaltation of God and promotion of his name. But Babel and later throughout history, their tongues were being used for the opposite. Would this stymie the plan of God to make the whole earth worshipers of him? No, it leads exactly to where he wanted it to be headed. So Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost had come. That word for Pentecost is a word for 50th. And it's not just uh, a word then and there and that time. It actually goes back to the book of Leviticus, the Feast of Weeks. That, you don't have to turn there, but this was one of the um, three major festivals on the Jewish calendar that all Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem to attend. 2 Chronicles 8.13, Solomon observed the daily requirements for sacrifices that Moses specified. Three annual celebrations, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, the Feast of Weeks that starts the day after Passover, and the Feast of Booths. Leviticus 23, verse 15, says, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, right after the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread, Passover ends, 50 days from that, After the seventh Sabbath, you shall present, and then he goes into all the different offerings, a grain offering, verse 16, 17, a wave offering, 18, a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord, a sin offering, verse 19, the wave offering, again, verse 20, all this for what? Verse 21, on the same day, you shall make a proclamation. You are to have a holy gathering or convocation. You shall do no work. It is to be a perpetual, ongoing statue in your dwelling throughout all your generations. This is what Pentecost was about at the moment we find the people gathered there in Jerusalem 50 days after Jesus is raised again. They're not there to celebrate him. All these devout men, verse 5, from every nation under heaven, all these Jews living in and around Jerusalem have come here of different descent, but now uh, they have been proselytized into Judaism, and they are there for this festival even though they have different ethnic roots. So they're all speaking Aramaic. But God wants to get through to them in that moment right there in redemption history that he is not just for Israel. He's for the earth. He's going to fulfill the promise, oddly enough, made right after Babel in Genesis chapter 12 to who? His one chosen righteous man, Abraham. In verse 3, that those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And you will be a blessing. Through you will come a blessing to who? All the nations. This is what's happening right in front of us as we turn these pages of Scripture. God is so committed to his name being known in all the earth from every tongue and tribe and nation. He's patient to get there. In the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4, the son was sent into the world. He has that perfect timeline for his first coming as much as he does for his second coming. And it's going to happen by way of what? The appearance of the Holy Spirit so that the gospel can be preached through men in the gifts that he gives them. In what? exhortation, evangelism, teaching, prophecy, and yes, even tongues, a foreign language, 
that he can make his name known to the ends of the earth. That's what tongues has to do with Pentecost, and that's what Pentecost is doing to reverse the curse at Babel. When Israel failed in being the light to shine to the world who God is, now all the nations would get the good news brought to them. In Babel, God used languages to protect man from himself and his own demise. But now at Pentecost, languages would be used to save man from himself and his own demise. Do you see the reversal? And he's using language to do it. That's why we don't just parachute into 1 Corinthians 12, 10 and enforce our experience in view on the text when we talk about languages. We pull out and say, what was God doing with languages all along? It was for him to make his name known. Not for us at any point from Babel to Pentecost to 30 years later in Corinth to make much of who? You and me. It violated what God had given us languages and tongues for back in Genesis 11, back in Acts 2, and then certainly in 1 Corinthians 12. It's not about your significance, your gifts, what you promote in yourself, your own interests. It's always about, first and foremost, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ and then the edification of others. So how is he going to do it here at Pentecost? Well, he sends the Spirit. Verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they're sitting. So there's a sound. And then verse 3, there's a sight. There appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. So that's something they could hear that they don't understand. It's something they could see that they're not quite sure what that is. But we know from texts like John 3, 7 and 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it is going. So everyone who is what? Born of the Spirit. And Acts 2 is an echo of John 3, 7 and 8. The appearance like tongues of fire spreading like a wildfire among them is an echo of Luke three sixteen. When John the Baptist says, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie his sandals, he will baptize or immerse you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What are the two things we have present here at Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? A sound like a wind that people didn't see where it was coming from or where it was going, and a sight like fire resting and moving over the heads of all those who were there. The result, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And what were they saying? Jump down to verse 11. They were speaking the mighty deeds of God. This is what we were meant to be doing going back to Genesis 11. To give him praise and him glory and tell his mighty deeds, not to say, let's make a name for ourselves with this brick and mortar. This was about his glory being known. And all those original people groups that these Jews who were gathered there, that they could hear someone speaking the mighty works of God in their own language, it caught their attention. The miracle at Pentecost is not apples to apples with 1 Corinthians 12. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, it's both the speaking in different languages, but also the what? The interpretation of them. Here you just have the speaking in different languages, but there is no interpreter. 
There's no miracle in the hearing. These guys know what they're saying. That's what was catching the attention of these devout men gathered from every nation under heaven. They ask themselves, how are we hearing them speak in our own language? They're amazed and they're astonished. They're saying, how do these Galileans know? I mean, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, I mean, residents of Mesopotamia, all these, not just language, but even the dialect, these people from Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and all these areas are going, I think that guy over there, I don't know what his name was, but he, he just said something to me in my, my tongue from birth, my native tongue, and that would blow their minds. But yet they still didn't put it all together that what God was doing here in his plan of redemption, did they? They're just looking around saying, what does this mean? God has gotten their attention. What does it mean? Some said, ah, they're drunk. Here's what it means. Peter stands up, raises his voice, declares to them, I'll tell you what this means. Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour today. But this is what was spoken of, prophesied by Joel. In the last days, I'll pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Then he talks about all the, all the symbolic activity, but he ends with this, verse 21 of Acts 2. It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what God wanted to get their attention for right there at Pentecost. Sure, he used the mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire and speaking languages that they understood in their original ethnic tongue, but it was all to lead to verse 21, that in this day when the Spirit's poured out, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Well, they're probably standing there because they're there for Pentecost. They're keeping the Old Testament law from Leviticus going, we've done that already. We're devout. We believe in Yahweh. Leave us alone. No, you guys still don't get the big picture of redemption. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel. The same Israel that has missed the point in redemption all along, so much so that you crucified the Messiah, men of Israel, the one that God attested to you with miracles and wonders and signs performed through him. You guys couldn't put it together. You had the scriptures pointing to him. You had the signs and miracles. And yet, verse 23 this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. You did it. Because you rejected the Savior that God sent. You thought you knew what it was to worship God, to call on the name of God, that you were different from your forefathers. You are no different than any of them. You missed the Messiah. You're more guilty than the rest. He was right there in your midst. And you missed him. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men, the Gentile godless men, and you put him to death. But here's the point. This was God's plan. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, going all the way back to the garden. The curse that when you sin, you will die. But here was the one that took the curse for you. It was impossible for him, for death to hold him in his power. Why? Because he was perfect. He overcame the grave. Friend, if you're here this morning, not quite sure of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, hear the first gospel preached by Peter at Pentecost. The first sermon, the first time somebody stood in front of a group of people in the power of the Spirit, looked them in the eye and said, if you are looking for a solution, for an answer that puts together 
all the questions you have about why you're here and what you're doing, whether you have a religious background or not, let me give you the answer right now. Jesus the Nazarene. He was delivered over by the plan of God. He was nailed to the cross. God raised him up again. Let everyone know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the gospel. Do you believe it? The same gospel that Peter preached 2,000 years ago in this room at Acts. God has put you in this room here today. And he doesn't need to use a tongue, a foreign language, or some sign or some wonder to get your attention. What should get your attention is that you're even sitting in this room and there is a a group of people today that you're sitting in the midst of who have all called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. That the message from the time that Peter delivered this sermon 2,000 years ago has lasted to today. It survived every attempt to extinguish it. Any effort that Satan or the enemies of of God have made to kill Christianity, to wipe it out, to change its message, to distort it, and the greatest miracle that you can trust in today and believe in today is that God sent his son to die and he rose again and you can believe on him and be saved. That's the miracle in front of you right now. You don't need all the other stuff. He's put you in the seat you're in and the life you lived and the problems you have and the sins you've committed to stand before you today and hear a message directed at your heart by the Holy Spirit. Are you cut by it? That God would be so merciful to send his son to die for you, the sinner. Are you cut by that? There's nothing else like it. That the Son of God would die for sinners. Die for those who, at the time, nailed him to the cross. Died for those sinners. Died for sinners before the cross and after the cross. What type of love is this? It's that love that demonstrated itself that while you were a sinner, Christ died. Do you believe that? Does that cut you to the heart to realize that's what I've been missing. I've been like someone back in Genesis 11 seeking to find my own significance in the things I could do with my own hands, constantly trying to impress others or even myself, religious or not. You could be sitting in a church your whole life doing that or this could be the first time you've walked in the doors of one. doesn't make any difference. Whose glory have you been living for? Yours or God's? That's what salvation comes down to. Who's on the throne of your life? You or God? And the only way that God can be on the throne of your life, that you would love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is that you would see that that throne's too big for you. It's too big for any person. Only God can be on it. And you trust in his son, to forgive you all your sins, past, present, and future. What great love he has for us, that he has given us his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel, as plain as I could put it. Do you believe it?
Have you given your life, the life that God gave you, that really isn't yours anyway? Have you said, it's, you're right, it's not mine, it's his? And I want my life now to be taken up and taken over by the Lord Jesus Christ. God, be merciful to being the sinner that I could give the rest of my life, however many days I have, to live for you in your glory, not to steal it one more moment, but to give all those moments for you because you gave your son for me. Have you trusted in Christ today? Call out to him. The Spirit's working on your heart, convicting you of your self-glorification. Search for your own significance, building your own towers. And you see them all crumbling in your mind and in your heart right now. Who's left standing? The Lord Jesus Christ, who would give you eternal life if you put your faith in him today. That's what Pentecost was about. The languages were just to grab the attention and to, to remind them that now this gospel is not just for Israel. The Gentiles are included, promised in the past, come to fruition at Pentecost. God will speak to all nations in all languages. So back to our first question. What are tongues for? It's to say, what are languages for? Not to exalt us, but to exalt God. Verse 11, right in front of us, to speak of the mighty deeds of God. What's the mightiest deed of God? That Jesus Christ, who was crucified for sinners, has risen again. And we can have eternal life in his name. That's the greatest, most wondrous work of God. From Babel to Pentecost, the tower of tongues was to tell the wonderful works of God. And what had been turned inward and lost now is turned outward in order for people to be redeemed. So now, let's finally make it back to 1 Corinthians 12 and tie this thing up. You see, why I went there with all this other stuff is to give us a bigger perspective when we want to get into the nooks and crannies and quibbling and debating over tongues. And I had this experience and I had that and I went to that church and I went to this and you step back and you say, wait, what is it for? How small it appears now, doesn't it? In the great story of redemption in the Bible of what God is trying to do that every tongue and tribe and nation would put their faith in Jesus Christ. How small it is to debate over this point and even divide as some Christians do. So Paul, I mean, that's what's happening here in Corinth. It has the potential to divide. That's why he has to revisit it in chapter 14 after reminding them that preeminent among any gift is the grace of what? Chapter 13, love. And he could say, in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love, then desire the spiritual gifts. But you got to pursue love first or you'll do it for the wrong reason. It'll become about you and not about the God who gave you the gift and not about the people that you can build up and strengthen with the gift. That's what tongues are about. And this church was missing the point and we don't want to miss the point that just as tongues had been blown so out of proportion in Corinth as the superior gift and the one that gets the show, Paul has to give it extra discussion. It serves as a reminder for us today, doesn't it? When we want to make tongues the be-all and end-all spiritual gift, 
So much so that some denominations have defined the work of the Spirit in a person's life by that singular gift. And that's part of a larger discussion. But hear this loud and clear. Every Christian, when they are born again, gets all of the Holy Spirit's indwelling in their life at salvation. No exceptions, no caveats. When you are born again, the Spirit comes into your life. And you have Him. And you have all of Him. Now, you might be saying, but what does it mean then to be filled with the Spirit? Well, that's, that's a part of living out the Christian experience. But you have to go to other passages for that. But those passages, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, none of those verses have any bearing on needing to receive a second blessing. That's the entire opposite direction that 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 flow. And it's by misreading Acts chapter 2, taking something that's descriptive, a narrative, and trying to make it normative. Trying to make it normative. Saying, oh, if it happened in Acts 2, clearly, you know, spirit came, they all spoke in tongues, we should all speak in tongues. And if you haven't spoken in tongues, then you don't have that second blessing or filling of the spirit. Sorry. Uh, back of the picture, please. Us tongue speakers need to get to the front. That's what was happening in Corinth. Can you see how division could occur? A two-tiered Christian experience? The super spiritual? And then the rest? When there is no prominence or preeminence of gifts. In fact, when you read the rest of the New Testament letters, what is the emphasis on? Preaching, teaching, exhorting, serving, helping, leading, giving, ministering, evangelizing. Seems to be the focus. But Paul does have to address it here. And in addressing the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the gift of prophecy in tongues, he does give us some parameters out of which it should operate by. So let's um, look at some of those parameters in chapter 14. First parameter that Paul gives in chapter 14, and I'll do this in summary fashion, comes in verses 1 through 12. And this is the summary that he gets at. When you're going to talk about pursuing tongues, well, first off, pursue love and then be eager for the gifts, he says in verse 1. So if your, your zeal exceeds your love, go back to start because you're going to get it wrong. That's, that, that's the message of chapter 13. That's why it's right in between. It says, I, I need you guys to know love is the preeminent grace, not tongues or prophecy is the preeminent gift. Now, pursue love and then desire these gifts. And then 2 to 12 is this first rule. Group edification is greater than personal experience. Group edification is better than personal experience. That's Paul's message from verses 2 to 12. It's about edification, exhortation, consolation. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. So he puts them next to each other. And then he says in verse 5, hey, if there's an interpretation for the tongue, then the church now can be edified. But without it, one person says I'm built up versus everybody else getting nothing out of it. When, verse 12, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. He makes it front and center, loud and clear, that group edification trumps personal experience. And that's been part of the greater message on spiritual gifts as a whole back to chapter 12. Verse 7, 
to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, that everyone would be built up by the gift you're given. Rule number two, and this takes place in verses 13 to 19. Rule number two is mindless speech is not as good as mindful speech or being fully aware, fully present. 14 to 19 dispels the Corinthian myth that they had transposed in from their pagan experience that going into some trance-like state, some ecstasy is truly spiritual. And Paul's like, no, no, it's better to pray where your mind is fruitful, not unfruitful. I will pray with my mind. I will sing with my mind. Now, he's not making this an intellectual affair. He's just highlighting the fact that, look, it's a, when you're worshiping God, the greatest experience of it is when all of you is into it. Head and heart. No, I'm going to separate these things out because that's what had happened at Corinth because of the pagan background. They were losing touch with reality but thought, well, that was kind of the experience when we used to be worshiping Apollos or at the Oracle at Delphi. You know, I went to this trance-like state. It was a crazy trip. And that's kind of cool. This is, um, you know, I'm supposed to be focusing my thoughts and attention on Jesus Christ the Lord. And yeah, yeah, that's him you praise. That's what worship is about, exalting Christ, loving Christ, making much of Christ, not losing touch with reality. So that was rule number two Paul sets out. And then rule number three, and this is basically the entirety of verse 20 to 40, is orderliness. That when you're gathered as a church, orderly public worship is always better than disorder or chaos. And speaking to the line of there not being confusion, but of peace in verse 33, that even in speaking in tongues, 27 and 28, it flips on the head this idea of, of losing control and being truly free when he can say, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at most, each in turn must have an interpreter. If you don't stay silent, that doesn't sound like everybody's just like going crazy there, does it? That they're just totally losing touch with reality. If Paul can give an instruction within the orderliness of worship, that you just don't do whatever you feel like doing. So, three rules. Verse 37, Paul gives that are not his commandments. Whose commandments are they in 1 Corinthians 14? He says, I write to you, these are the Lord's commandments. Let that hit you for a moment. Those parameters I just laid out aren't Adam throwing the, you know, wet blanket over the spirit moving in our midst. Paul could say, look, the things I just told you, let them recognize that the things which I write to you are Jesus Christ the Lord's commandments. Can you square with that? It's not Adam. It's not even Paul. Paul says these are from the Lord. And when the Lord wants to be worshipped in a certain way, even in a certain form, he has the right to require that. But he's doing it for our own good. Going back to even Genesis 11, because God knows our tendencies. He knows what things can get away from us. He knows that it can quickly escape and devolve into worshiping in, in my own way, the way I want to, and that's true freedom. And God says, no, that actually can lead you pretty far away. You know, the craziest, biggest, most blown up, um, raging worship session in the Bible is to a golden calf. 
I mean, if you were to just look at fruit alone, effects alone, are the people into it? Yeah. Are they partying? Yeah. Are they having a great time? Yeah. And they're worshiping what? A God they made in the image of a calf out of gold. So being free and wild and whatever has little to no bearing on true worship. And yet, sometimes in the evangelical culture, they want to make it about that. And that you put any parameters, or as Paul does, put some guides up for it. Oh, now you're, you're grieving the Spirit. No, grieving the Spirit is about speaking an unedifying word in Ephesians 4. A word that tears down rather than builds up. That's how you grieve the Spirit. So, that's Paul's parameters. That's the conclusion of the matter. And maybe just ask yourself the question today. You know, in, in the tongue that you do have, and in the language you do know, how are you using it? Because it can be easy, you know, to just take a command in like verse 14. Hey, pursue love and then desire earnestly spiritual gifts. I'm supposed to desire this. Okay, that's cool. But with the tongue you do have and in the language you do know, are you exalting God in your speech? Because his name is to be exalted first and foremost in your life. So before going after this other thing over here, when you come here to worship, when you're on your own singing, are you exalting God in your speech? Are you edifying others with your speech? Again, in the language you do know, in the tongue you do have, is the edification of others second on the list? Because it is for Paul. Third, are you evangelizing the lost with the tongue you do have and the language you do know? I mean, these are clear commands. These are, these are no-brainers, but they're not gimmies. Because it could be quick to want to skip past, like, yeah, I know, Adam, exalt God with my tongue, edify others, evangelize the lost. Let's get to the tongues. No. Because those are the absolutes that we are called to honor God with our mouth, to sing his praises, to speak his glories, to declare his righteous deeds, to build up brothers and sisters in Christ in a way they understand it, and to evangelize the lost so they can hear the good news. So if you can check those boxes, let's talk about Desire earnestly spiritual gifts. And then remember the parameters set. Group edification, fully aware speech, orderly worship. Are we going to exemplify and honor the way that Paul lays it out or just do it in our own? But the last question we have to ask is, what's my motive? Am I doing all this in verse thir or chapter 13 out of love? Paul has a math problem for you chapter 13. He asks you, what is five minus one equal? Pretty easy. Five minus one, four. Paul says, no. If I speak with tongues, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I have the gift of knowledge, if I have the gift of faith, and if I have generosity, like nobody's seen before. But I subtract love. What do I have? Nothing. That's Paul's spiritual gift math. And that's what I leave you with today. You could have those five things beyond what anybody's ever seen in the church. The greatest preacher, the greatest giver, the greatest faith, the most miracles. But if you don't have love, I am nothing, and it profits me nothing. 
So pursue love, beloved. Then desire earnestly the spiritual gifts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its power. Thank you for its glory that we could have stepped back today and in wanting to look at this one issue in 1 Corinthians 12, you were able to show us the big picture of how language is to be used for the glory of God, whether it's known or unknown, that when you're being glorified with it, Lord, that's the highest function that the form is able to accomplish. And for that, we bring you praise. We thank you that we today can exalt you with our language. We can edify one another and we can, yes, evangelize and pray you would bring those opportunities. Lord, we thank you that when your word is rightly divided and put in front of us, made simple, not made confusing because you're a God of order and not chaos, that we are built up rather than made weak. Thank you, Spirit, for strengthening us, edifying us, comforting us, consoling us as your work is promised to do. Thank you for being our teacher. Thank you for being our guide. Thank you for being our helper. All of it is from you and through you and to you. Christ, we bring you praise. Amen.